Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Alex Ketch, CEO of OnChain Custodian, the Singapore-based cryptocurrency and digital asset custodian he and his co-founders set up in 2018 to support the rise of the token economy. After 22 years in the security services industry, first with BNY Mellon, then with SWIFT in Brussels, and Natalie as head of securities, FX and standards for SWIFT in Singapore, Alex brings a great deal of experience to digital asset custody, including the role that standards can play in helping the security token markets to grow. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I'd like to get one issue out of the way straight away. You describe yourselves at, at OnChain Custodian in ways which we can understand about digital custody and so on, but you also describe yourselves as an open finance business. Uh, what exactly did you mean by that? Well, we mean everything that is around decentralized finance in the sense of uh, obviously the buy and sell of cryptocurrencies, but also the deployment of those assets into investment products being centralized finance, like lending and borrowing through a partner like Celsius Network, for example, but also decentralized finance and staking, for example, uh, is an example of that. Uh, that's how I define open finance. In other words, it's new ways of uh, generating yield, new ways of uh, getting financing, uh, without having a, a traditional intermediary in the middle. Right, we'll come back to that when we, when we talk a little bit about, uh, about the DeFi markets later on, but thanks for, for clearing that up. Now, custody uh, obviously matters to, to cryptocurrency and techniques have been pioneered there and we'll talk a bit about those, but could we begin by uh, talking about the, the least developed aspect of the tokenized markets, in other words, the security token markets. Uh, one of the sites I look at is securities.io. It records just 29 uh, security token listings, 16 of them in the US, five of them in Switzerland. Uh, and they cover a variety of things, venture funds, real estate, mining, and an awful lot of uh, what's called tokenomics, uh, of which 12 of those 29 are actually funded. So it's clear that security token issuance, at least, is not yet at the point of taking off into self-sustaining um, growth. Uh, and it's, it's not, the technology is not at the point where it can achieve scalability, those, you know, tens of thousands of, of transactions a second, which you need. Now, now, is this an argument for traditional custodian banks to do nothing? Or do you think that that would be a foolish strategy on their part? Uh, I think it would be foolish, uh, not because um, of the maturity of security token, more uh, because I think it's a alternative way to deal with securities. It's not, I don't believe that security token will replace the entire uh, traditional way of dealing with securities, both for trading and clearing. I think it's a, it's a good alternative way to issue um, uh, for issuance, for trading, and for settlement on assets that are today badly served by the, uh, the existing infrastructures. So I'm not talking about equities. I'm not talking about government bonds. I'm talking about all those um, illiquid and less fractional uh, in terms of ownership uh, assets like real estates, like corporate bonds, for example, uh, like um, uh, fine art, why not? So things that are a bit more bespoke, uh, that will never be uh, looked at by traditional players or by traditional infrastructures because they, it's too costly to do so and therefore require a light, uh, cheap technology 
uh, and, and efficient and on an operational and technological point of view uh, uh, technology to deal uh, to, to enable liquidity and enable fragmentation of ownership. And that's where blockchain plays a role. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I took part in an event uh, recently where um, we asked the audience whether they thought the security token markets would be roughly the same size as the current security markets within 10 years. And there was a majority in favor of, of saying that they would. I, I just share that with you. It's, uh, there was quite a lot of uh, positive uh, feeling about the growth here. But you've raised this question of, of privately managed assets, uh, private debt, private equity, real estate infrastructure, and uh, collectibles, fine art, and so on. Now, I was surprised when I, this has emerged as a, as a, as a clear opportunity for tokenization, but I was surprised how valuable and how large these markets are. And you know, McKinsey runs a, an annual report on this and puts it at like seven and a half trillion dollars. So it's clearly a large opportunity, not some, some side issue. The problem if you're a traditional custodian is that you don't really play much role in those markets. You might do a bit of private equity valuation, NAV calculations, but actually you're not really doing custody work in that, in, in that area. So is your advice to the custodians to get excited about this, traditional, traditional custodians, I mean, to get excited about this area, or do you think this, they're not in a position to exploit it? Actually, it is uh, exactly what you say. They should get excited about it because they don't do much about it today. And it's an opportunity for them to grow the assets in custody uh, volumes that they have and, and, and go into uh, areas that uh, they are not able to service today um, and therefore better serve uh, their, their customers as well. So I fully agree with you. It's, it's all about uh, uh, opening up the, the type of assets that they can manage and, and offering service around. What I would like to add to that as well is that um, the way the tokenization is happening today is pretty much trying to take existing stuff and making them more efficient. But I think blockchain and tokenization and securities token in general is, is more than that. I think the, the technology itself, the way it works, will open new opportunities that we don't know yet today. Uh, uh, exists actually maybe new way of, of financing new types of of needs that don't today we don't even think about because um, because we don't have the technology to to support them in an efficient way so let, let's not forget about that as well as the innovations meaning real new things that will come up uh, new ideas that will come up uh, in the in the long run uh, or in medium term because of the the existence of that technology and one thing which would clearly persuade uh, global custodians to engage with the private asset, privately managed assets is, is institutional interest. And we've, we've seen institutional investors getting involved in cryptocurrency. They've been doing it for, for more than a year now. Um, when Fidelity ran a survey last year, they found 36% were invested already. They found 80% found something appealing about digital assets, which could mean a, a variety of things. So um, clearly the the institutions are starting to look at this market, but they're not yet fully engaged with security tokens. Do you think this is a problem of, of education? Is it a problem of, um, of a supply of issues? What, what's, what's holding them back? It's the supply. I think at this stage, uh, it's still limited. And as you rightly pointed out at the beginning of this discussion, uh, the number of issuance uh, is, is, is very low. And, uh, and that's due to also the need to persuade issuers to uh, that there is an advantage for them to issue 
uh, on the blockchain rather than uh, going the traditional uh, uh, Ritz way for uh, for real estate and, and, and what they're doing today. So I think it this type of change and mindset change takes a lot of time. Once there will be more assurance, more offering, uh, uh, there will be more interest from the from the investors themselves and the 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 owners of the assets themselves. Um, uh, in the meantime, I think uh, the, the, they will be focusing on what exists and, and works and has proven to be of value, which is cryptocurrency, our cryptocurrencies, uh, some of the tokens uh, in terms of uh, ecosystem tokens. So investing into the technology itself through tokenization. Uh, and um, yeah, and, and that we'll see with the securities tokens where it goes. And in terms of the institutions, well, institutions uh, that should be pioneering this security token asset class. We look back at cryptocurrency, we see it was hedge funds, VC funds, family offices, in addition to, to retail con consumers, of course. Um, do you think those are the right people to pioneer security tokens as well? And are you seeing that happening? Uh, yes, because uh, I do see that happening. Uh, we, we don't deal with securities token uh, yet at on-chain custodian for the reason that it requires a specific license and that the, uh, as the supply and the business, uh, commercial business, is not there enough for us to to focus on that. But uh, I do see colleagues who are dealing with securities token um, having interest from the, the the traditional crypto players, because for them it's a natural next step in their investments, uh, knowing the technology, uh, being comfortable with the technology, and being comfortable with the the, the players in the market. Um, now uh, we do see. If you look at uh, uh, LinkedIn jobs and, uh, and Indeed, uh, you'll see a lot of openings at banks, traditional banks, custodians around digitization, um, uh, digital assets, big cryptocurrencies and securities uh, token. And I think that demonstrate that uh, those banks are going there because they, they would generally not go there if there's no demand from their own customer base. So I think the fact that we see more and more jobs there demonstrate that there's certain demand in the traditional customer base of, uh, of those um, traditional players. Now, can we talk a little bit about, about custody techniques for this asset class? When it first came along, or cryptocurrencies first came along, uh, you used to put them on a sort of um, USB stick and lock it in your safe and um, uh, uh, throw away the key. Um, it got a bit more sophisticated when these hardware security modules came along and you had a dongle you could plug into your laptop uh, and you could do multi-signature and that was a form of additional security. Um, we're now talking about multi-party computation. Now these things matter because they are, um, we need a technique here which is sufficiently fast uh, and sufficiently convenient to, to attract institutional money and to work with these newer blockchain technologies. And up to this point, it's been a very clumsy um, clumsy process. Do you think we have solved the technical side of the private key custody problem now with multiple computation? I do believe that we've solved it not only with MPC but also with uh, with uh, hardware security modules. So we do use HSMs at Swift uh, at Onchain Custodian, but at Swift as well. Actually, the ones that uh, uh, Swift uh, banks would be using to connect to Swift, uh, except that uh, those would be HSMs level two or level three certified on the FIPS point of view. The ones we use are level four, so it's an extra level of security required because of the, the, the nature of private keys and the nature of cryptocurrencies. But in, in other words, I think that in terms of technology and operational setup, um, 
the industry has matured considerably in the last three to four years. Technology solutions like MPC, like HSMs offered by IBM, the ones we use and others, Securosis, um, uh, for example, and others, uh, have been designed specifically for dealing with digital assets. Uh, so that in my view, that problem is solved. Uh, though in, for securities token, it's not so much of a problem because uh, most issuance platform, uh, big token E or Podimalt or, or other uh, platforms um, take into consideration the fact that you always know with securities token who owns the token, right? Because it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not uh, anonymous. It's, it, you have to register the, you have to KYC the ownership, uh, the owners, and know who owns the assets, which means that you can also put in place processes that if an, an owner would lose his assets uh, because either he misplaced it, misplaced them where they stolen, they can be frozen and reissued. So the, the cybersecurity as issue that exists in Bitcoin, for example, does not necessarily exist in securities token. So it allows you to be a bit less I would say, worried about the cybersecurity aspects uh, when you talk about securities token. Yeah, so it's an important point that if you lose your security token, it can be replaced. It's not like cryptocurrency. If it's gone, it's gone forever. It's gone. Yeah, which is what people tend to remember. But clearly, whatever the technical solutions, technology is not enough. Um, with any custody solution, you need multiple layers of protection, don't you? Controls on, on human behavior. An awful lot of the 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 thefts and and scandals in the cryptocurrency sector basically been inside jobs because people didn't have sufficient uh, internal processes and procedures to protect themselves from their own staff uh, let alone out external hackers and operational errors and so on so what do, what are you advising um, as a as a digital asset custodian what are you advising clients to look for in terms of those processes and procedures to add security to their custody arrangements it is uh, a very critical part uh, indeed. So it's not only about security, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's also about operational setup. And that's where you, you ensure that there is enough uh, checks and balances on who have access to what uh, at the custodian, but also at the customer level. So there should be a, a concept of uh, MFA, multi-factor uh, authentication for accessing the account of the customer at the customer level. Uh, the customer should have the ability to define the authorization levels he wants to add on top of uh, the wallets that they use, um, two authorizers, three authorizers, uh, only one for some transaction. There should be a way to uh, limit uh, how many transactions for specific wallets per day, what the, what's the maximum value to ensure that uh, if something happens, the, ac the, the account is automatically frozen, uh, for example. So those type of, I would say, technical uh, features helping you operate your account in a, in, in a secure way are important. On the customer side, on the service provider side, sorry, uh, you should ask all the questions. Uh, so who has access to what? How, how much access has the technology team to the platform itself? And, and, and uh, how does it work? Um, the insurance is important. So generally, if a custodian has an insurance that is not only covering cold storage, by the way, because cold storage is, I don't think it even requires insurance because it's almost impossible to break. But insurance should cover cold, it should cover warm storage, so the hot wallet or the warm wallets, and it should cover income, uh, employee misconduct. So if that insurance, if you have a, a Lloyds of, Bank, of London insurer, uh, underwriters who've accepted to insure the custodians at that level, it means that the operational and technological uh, setup is, is, is sound. 
It's, a, it's quite an interesting mixture of, of new techniques and, and fairly old fashioned techniques, which institutional money coming into this space is going to have to get used to. Uh, but, but although we are starting to see global custodians get into this, uh, in, into cryptocurrency custody at least, um, it's quite a big conceptual leap for them as well. They've got used to, you know, safeguarding and reconciling, you know, stocks, which are recorded in these centralized uh, ledgers, and they then settle transactions with them at a CSD and, and central bank money. And so on. now they've got to get used to um, all the things you've described to safeguard these these private keys. It's in these decentralized ledgers. They have to use those keys to to authorize transactions on behalf of clouds. Now, uh, is it your observation that 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 our old fashioned global custodians are struggling to make that that conceptual leap? Um. Do they struggle? Some of them might. Uh, I, in the two, well, almost three years now of uh, running the on-chain custodian, and of considering my prior, uh, pre, my previous network with custodians, traditional custodians, I've had a lot of calls with uh, all the custodians you can imagine asking questions. So they, they, there's a lot of education and mindset change again on, okay, what does that mean to be a custodian of securities token or cryptocurrencies? I think education has been happening for the last two to three years now. You can see based on jobs uh, openings and, 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 and services announcement that they, they've, they're now comfortable with doing it uh, or more comfortable. Uh, the, the approaches are very different. So some are creating an external company to do that, like uh, uh, Zodia by State Street and, and Standard Chartered Bank, or or the other one by ING, I forgot the name. So, uh, and others decides to create a specific entity that will deal with that, like State Street Digital, that just been announced recently. So, I think uh, they uh, the fear they will have is the impact on the core business, and and they will solve that. If something goes wrong, in in my in other words, so and I think the way they will solve that is either by creating separate entities to deal with that, or or will do that via their um, their venture arm, or creating uh, joint ventures with other custodians. Um, I don't think they're ready to in include it as part of their core business uh, uh, of custody uh, that they have uh, alongside equities and fixed income. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about? about netting and I want to talk about this and you'll be very familiar with netting from your experience in the securities and, and the FX markets. You'll have seen it happening multilaterally in the securities markets through, through CCPs. You'll have seen it happening bilaterally between banks in the FX markets. You'll have seen it happening, of course, through, through CLS and people net because it generates very large savings in, in capital and liquidity. They like settling and um, the the cost savings are potentially enormous. Can the benefits of netting be preserved in security token markets as they develop? Um, let's take the example of uh, cryptocurrencies for, for a second. So exchanges are more and more, the, the crypto exchanges I'm talking, are more and more offering uh, a concept that is well known in in traditional bank finance, which is a credit line. So the, the concept of allowing someone to trade on the crypto exchange for throughout the day and then net settle at the end of the day uh, based on the, on, on the credit line model. Uh, that's the way they've kind of uh, solved the netting or at least uh, implementing the netting concept in, in the crypto space. Another interesting concept is uh, layer two um, uh, settlements um, 
layer two blockchains, I would say, which allows you to transact between different parties using a, uh, um, I would say that, an, an equivalent to the assets that you are effectively transacting. And at the end of the day or, at two, or once a week, you can move the real assets on blockchain. So use, uh, Credo is a good example of that. They, they're offering uh, their own tokens that will be used as a value exchange and, and, and as a, a settlement method between the various parties on the network. And, uh, and then once, uh, uh, once uh, they decide to settle, they do the nets and they only move on the Bitcoin blockchain, on the Ethereum blockchain, the assets uh, that they, they need to move on a net basis. So I guess on the securities token, there are opportunities to uh, inspire themselves from uh, that concept of layer two or of a credit line model. Um, that I haven't seen anything yet happening on that space, to be honest. I think it's still early stage, but uh, I would assume that there will be uh, intentions and, 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 and opportunities to try to do something similar, yeah. Just to be clear that I understand what you were saying there about the layer two um, solution. The, the assets, the underlying assets are tokenized and you can trade and, and settle at the token level and then eventually you net and settle the real assets delivery but, against payment, as it were off-chain? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's on another blockchain. So <laughs> it's on a layer two uh, right. uh, on a blockchain. blockchain. Okay. Exactly. So some are based on, uh, on, a, on a, an additional blockchain on top of the, uh, the, block, the Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum blockchain. Others are actually re-centralizing very much the, <laughs> the, the activity, meaning that you are uh, um, going into a centralized layer two, which I don't like too much, obviously, if you're looking at, if you, if you are a, a supporter of decentralization, where everything is happening and then you settle on the blockchain. So there are different techniques that are, are being experimented at this stage. It's still experimentation in, in my view, uh, but uh, I think it, it will mature rather quickly like this industry has proven uh, that it can mature quickly uh, for some of the solutions they, they, they propose. Well, since we're talking about settlement, let, let's 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 stay stay with it um, because uh, you know traditional settlement is is delivery of, of securities against cash payment. If it's through a CSD, it's in in central bank money, but not in the CSD. It can be commercial bank money. It can be both, of course. Um, now, uh, how do you see the current state of settlement in the security token markets? Are payment tokens, for example, um, becoming the, the favored technique now? And how will um, central bank digital currency, in other words, will have fiat currency available on chain if, if, if this evolves. So I'm asking you three questions in one here, payment tokens, stable coins, CBDCs, the cash leg of settling security token transactions. Where is it now? How's it evolving? And where do you think it'll be in future? So my understanding on the securities token side, from what I observe uh, with the, the, the uh, in Singapore and elsewhere, is that it's very, it's still very much fiat uh, based, and it's not obviously atomic or true DVP. Uh, uh, so that that's a challenge. Some are experimenting stable coins, uh, and I think it's not a bad idea as long as the issuer of the stable coin is reliable. Uh, that shouldn't be, in my view, an issue. Uh, again, that works pretty well in the crypto, well, in the uh, startup fintech uh, ecosystem because the, the, the compliance requirements or at least the risk management are, are, are less than in traditional banking. Uh, but um, stable coins, in my 
technology would uh, uh, would be good. Uh, this is uh, used every day in the crypto space. So every transactions uh, uh, buying Bitcoin on, on most exchanges is is done using USDT, USDC, or true USDs or the stable coins. Not too much the fiat currency anymore. People are happy to keep their 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 cash in. Uh, stable coins, especially knowing that they can earn a large yield with their uh, with the extra liquidity they have. Um, now, will CBDC uh, be uh, the next way of of enabling DVP? Probably, and it's probably the one that will be selected by the traditional players uh, who are not fond of um, privately owned uh, commercial company uh, stablecoin issuance. Now, to, to, to go back to, to educating institutional money about, about custody of, of security tokens, we've, we've touched on that difference between cryptocurrency custody and security token custody. You can replace security tokens, so the risk is lower than if you lose your security token. It's lower than if you lose your cryptocurrency. It's not gone if it's gone, as it were. Um, but one of the, one of the um, memories which institutional money has about cryptocurrency was those um, various defalcations which I, I spoke on out of out of crypto custody exchanges because they had these huge conflicts of interest you know they were issuing these things they were trading these things they were settling them they were they were they were custodying them as well and it was creating a lot of problems which have become very familiar in securities markets over the last 30 years about unclassified credit um, you know mutualization of risk and, and these institutions have been created like CCPs um, to solve these, and in fact, I was very interested to, to read in the um, in the Revolution Populi uh, white paper, and whether you've read it uh, and had influenced by a, an individual DTCC who'd worked at uh, at the US CCP, saying he felt that CCPs might have some role to play inside. Um, post-trade in, in security token, or he was talking more generally about open data markets, but if we stick just to security tokens, it, it could provide a central counterparty, making it much easier for people to, um, to trade um, against each other uh, with confidence because they had this um, anonymous central counterparty um, in the middle. So I'm, I'm thinking two things here. One is um, how important is it that custodians are independent and secondly, do you think CCPs have a role going forward in security token markets? So uh, I think it is critical that uh, custodians be independent or custody as a function be independent from the trading side. And I think that's why we, we have seen the emergence of uh, digital asset custodians, uh, starting with because of crypto and for cryptocurrencies, uh, but also for securities token. Um, Segregation of duty between trading and custody uh, is one of the reasons, but also uh, focus is the other the, the other reason. So focus in the sense of uh, cryptocurrency exchange, but also securities token exchanges are primarily created as commercial entities to uh, intermediate buyers and sellers and to make revenue out of that. And they will generally not spending spend enough money nor time uh, on custody. That's why they they were. Historically, a lot of hacks in the crypto space uh, because they really didn't care about custody, to be honest. Uh, that's not what was bringing them their revenue. Um, having focused third-party custodians dealing with that aspect and uh, as a core business uh, makes it 
way more re uh, reliable for the for the users and for the for the infrastructures uh, for the um, ecosystem in general so that's the first reason and of course the second reason is conflicts of interest as you mentioned uh, on the legal and liability point of view so yes uh, the, obviously in the new world uh, csds uh, were also playing that role no longer really need to exist except for some uh, specific function that uh, we can discuss later so custodians would be uh, even more important in that in in, in that respect uh, now uh, could ccps play a role uh, yes uh, why not um, but it's not going to be the same a similar role that they play today i think it, it might be the uh, around what i've just explained early on with regards to the layer two slash credit line model for finding ways of ensuring that you can trade and only settle what needs to be settled. It will not be done the same way that it's done today. It's not going to be centralized counterparty. It's going to be different, but uh, yes, there, there is room for that. Uh, these players I mentioned before uh, who are layer two providers or uh, are, are not known or uh, don't have the name of CCPs, but they kind of play that role when you look at uh, you look at it. Now, as we as we discussed earlier, you know the global custodians are getting into this space via cryptocurrencies. Um, how useful is that experience of custodying cryptocurrency going to be to them as they are pushed by their institutional clients to get into security token custody over over time as well? Do you think the one is a good preparation for the other? Um, yes, I think it will be in terms of uh, technical setup, uh, for sure. Uh, but I think um, they, they're smart enough. I mean, I hope they're smart enough to, to, to make it right. I do advise them to partner uh, with, uh, with people who've done it before, uh, meaning before uh, who are traditional crypto players. It's interesting to, to call ourselves traditional now, like pe people like us, but also technical techno technology solution providers, instead of trying to build everything uh, in-house and believing that they know everything. So that would be my advice. And uh, to all custodians doing it, work with people who know what they're doing because they've been doing it. If only for three years, it's better than uh, that no experience at all. But there are new things they have to master um, like the fact that private keys are equivalent to bearer ownership. We've talked about how you can replace missing security tokens, so that, that problem is to some extent solved. We've touched on instant settlement. But then there's this, this um, asset servicing being done by, by smart contracts. Um, how difficult a custodian is going to find that to get used to? Does it kind of rob them of their, a large part of their occupation? Or does it create a new custody risk for them? something important they still have to do. I think it's actually enabling automation of part of the, the role of asset servicing. That's that's what smart contracts will be doing is distributing automatically dividends, for example. Uh, I think it will remove move uh, remove from them the need to do stuff that honestly are not that uh, smart to do, uh, like dividend payments, for example. Uh, but it but it's, it's still going to be their responsibility, I think, to advise, inform, uh, ensure that everything is going as per uh, what the smart contract has been designed to uh, to do. So uh, more like a monitoring role than a execution role uh, in the asset servicing side. Um, th that's that's the role I see them playing in that space. Um, beyond that, um, there are so. Com I mean, 
I remember when I was at Swift standardizing corporate actions, there were like a hundred different types of corporate actions. Not So not everything will be uh, smart contractable, uh, if allow me this neologism. Um, it's, it, some of the things will still need to be done um, manually, or at least uh, the, the, the more traditional way. And, and that actually will potentially cause problems to uh, blockchains and uh, securities tokens issued in a too uh, strict and too formal way. Uh, there is a need. I think they, it's going to be difficult to unwind, um, to execute some specific type of corporate actions, for example, uh, if the instrument has been defined too strictly in terms of what the smart contract is allowed to do and not allowed to do. So flexibility even in the design of the smart contract will be essential. Well, the corporate actions problem still hasn't been solved uh, two or three years after you left. I, I very much doubt we'll, we'll see it solved in our lifetimes, but maybe smart contracts can make a dent in it somehow, which makes me think, I wonder um, how difficult traditional global facilities are going to find it to adapt their ways of doing things, their processes and procedures um, to, to tokenized markets. It's a, you know, smart contracts can help them solve some of the problem they face, but also presents a new type of problem to them. Is there an observation that they're going to find it difficult to, to adapt? Do they have to kind of rethink the way they do things to, to custody security tokens, or can they just adapt their methods to security tokens? Yeah, they will have to change. I mean, the, and, and change management is, is, is always the, the most difficult part to be done, especially in, in big banks. But, uh, but I mean, they've adapted over, over, over time, uh, on many different fronts. Uh, I mean, I, I still remember when I started at the Bank of New York, uh, which was not Bank of New York Mellon, uh, just to show you uh, my age, I guess, is that we were still clipping coupons, physical coupons. Mm -hmm. So, and it was 25 years ago. And obviously these things don't exist anymore, but they had to adapt to electronic. They had to adapt to a, a straight through processing. They had to adapt to uh, new standards. They had to adapt. I mean, banks have been adapting for years and years and years. And this one is more like a revolution in the way they have to think about uh, assets and, 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 and how value is stored and exchanged. But uh, I think it's just a question of, of education, learning, having an open mind. Um, and the fact that they're hiring externally demonstrate that they probably need some of those open minds coming in from outside, but um, they will they will manage, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned um, education, learning, hiring. Uh, they could also buy, that's one of the things that, that they like to do. They could buy cryptocurrency custodians, couldn't they? Rather as PayPal's bought Curve and Galaxy bought Bitco, and you've seen your old friends at, at BNY Mellon have, have, have taken a stake in, in Fireblocks. Is, is actually buying the expertise in part of the solution they should adopt. Absolutely. I mean, they've been doing they, this, that's what they're doing, right? So, uh, and I think that's when I'm often asked, what is your exit strategy as a company? I mean, there are one of the exit strategy as a company is obviously to be purchased, uh, to, be, to be bought by, by a, a bigger traditional player uh, beyond, or maybe us becoming so big that we can buy a custodian in the future. You never know. <laughs> no, we've, We've talked a lot about global custodians. Is there, is there any role that, that sub-custodians can play in security token markets? There will always be a role of, of, um, on the understanding of the domestic market because uh, one of the role of sub-custodians, uh, in my view, is being able to deal with taxation in that country, uh, um, regulatory framework in that country, 
um, ownership frameworks as well in terms of uh, specific securities, who has a right to own it, not own it, etc. And that's not going to change with securities token. It would be nice if it would become automatically global uh, when you issue in Singapore, but it's not going to be the case because jurisdictions are different. And that's not going to be, uh, that's not going to uh, change because of blockchain or, or tokenization. So subcustodians will still be very relevant in my view in understanding the domestic or regional contexts for the global ones and uh, and 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 also um, being also closer to some of the customers who are domestic mm -hmm. something else that global custodians and indeed international central securities depositories get involved in is of course securities lending uh, securities financing repo and so on. You touched a moment ago on, on layer two blockchains on tokenizing underlying assets. We see a, an experiment of that kind taking place in the Deutsche Börse um, backed HQLAX um, as a way of, of mobilizing collateral, which is deposited in lots of different places to enable people to uh, be more efficient uh, in the management of their collateral and liquidity needs. Um, do you think that Experiments like that have the potential fundamentally to disrupt the repo and stock loan markets? I, I do. I think uh, this um, Deutsche Börse experiments, which is no longer an experiment, I think it's live now, uh, is, 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 is a good one. I mean, it's a good use case for using uh, distributed ledger technology and tokenization in a way. In this case, they tokenize the rights to collateral in a way. And, and, and I, I do think it's, it's an excellent uh, layer two implementation, if, if you want to call it uh, in the crypto terms. Um, and, and yes, it, it is the opportunity to make things uh, move faster, move more efficiently, um, almost automatically without any risks of fat fingers or, or, or operational uh, of moving too much collateral because of a, a bad reconciliation. Um, process uh, happening at one point. So yes, uh, for both repo and for lending and borrowing, in the dealing of collateral, it will be very, uh, very important. Um, and as we discussed earlier on as well, uh, why not for the clearing of traditional, uh, well, for the clearing of trading of securities token as well. Now, we talked a little bit a minute ago about, about smart contracts and how it could help uh, global custodians on the one hand create new risks for them. And I guess one of those risks is, is obviously at the asset servicing stage when, when money or our assets are moving uh, because of dividend or interest being paid, shares are being split, um, a takeover is being completed or whatever, that, that, that risk of, of losing those assets or losing that, that cash entitlement goes up at, at points like that. And if, if it's a risk in traditional markets, it's obviously going to be a risk um, in the case of smart contracts being used to service tokenized assets as well. And those risks will be increased, I suppose, by vulnerabilities in the code, by scope for people to manipulate smart contracts. We've seen some evidence of this, uh, particularly in volatile market conditions. So do you think that the, the global custodians, as they look at this question of using smart contracts to service assets, they're gonna think, well, it's too risky. We'd rather stick with risks we know and understand that actually take on these new risks of code vulnerabilities and manipulation by hidden digital bad actors? I think it's going to be um, 
for the, for the ones who, uh, who have control over the issuance itself and the fact that, uh, uh, on how the, the smart contract should be coded at the end of the day, I think they will it will be evolutive, uh, ev evolving rather, meaning um, they might start by coding the dividend payment part because it's it's program it's easily programmable uh, and then maybe uh, in the next smart contract issuance or or the next issuance they do uh, add an extra layer of automatic automation through the smart contract so i think it's going to be a step-by-step -step approach that's what i would do as a custodian a global custodian is it starts uh, slowly but sure uh, but but and then uh, increase the automation through smart contracts as a uh, everybody feels comfortable. Of course, sometimes they will have to deal with assets that are not their assets, meaning that um, it has been issued by someone else with a smart contract coded by someone else. And uh, there, the importance in their risk management team and compliance team will be to have the right expertise, both legal and technological, to understand, to actually audit the smart contract before they start accepting uh, those instruments in custody. That's what we need to do, for example, before issuing, before uh, listing a token being a cryptocurrency or utility token in custody, we have a token assessment, which is about understanding uh, who is the issuer, who, uh, the team behind it, the project behind it, uh, the code behind it. Has a smart, if it's smart contract based like ERC20 tokens, for example, has the smart contract being audited by external parties, et cetera, et cetera. So if we do that in the crypto space, I'm pretty sure that they will want to do that as well in the securities token space. Mm -hmm. Now, before we leave the subject of custody, you're a member of the custody working group of the Global Digital Finance Membership uh, Club. Tell us a bit about the work that you're doing with that working group. Sure. So uh, the uh, Global Digital Finance is an industry group really looking at the, initially the, the developing code of conducts in absence of regulation. So uh, the, the, the group um, has various working groups. I'm co-chairing the custody working group with, uh, with uh, Hervé Francois from ING. And what we've been doing in the custody working group initially was to define uh, a code of conduct on how should we service our customers in a way that trust is built into the custody ecosystem. Uh, so we've issued a, I think it's a 10 page document that explains both in terms of legal compliance technology, what a, a good custodian and how a good custodian should behave uh, towards his customers. Transparency, uh, for example, uh, uh, third party auditability of codes that we uh, put uh, on our platform and so on and so forth. So that was the first step. Uh, obviously, since then, uh, regulators have stepped in as well, some regulators, and have set up some rules and, reg and, uh, and regulations around how custody should be done. Uh, but um, I think it was a good way also to influence those regulators towards uh, having the right regulation. Now the group is more focused on um, seeing the impact of new things uh, in the crypto space on custody, like DeFi, uh, like NFTs, um, uh, also trying to understand like securities token obviously as well uh, and so it's more informed we inform the membership about uh, new new changes in regulations about those assets uh, uh, new things coming up what is the impact on legal ownership of assets and so on and so forth and sometimes we produce documents for the benefits of the uh, of the industry now central security depositories what's going to happen to them on the one hand we've seen um, ASX in Australia, you know, enthusiastically adopting blockchain technology to replace its, its core system. 
On the other hand, we think to ourselves, well, security tokens are going to be issued into uh, digital wallets. Uh, they're going to be controlled by investors or third-party service providers, you know, such as the custodian bank, which we've just been talking about. Um, you know, what's the point of, of CSDs? What will they actually what will they actually do? Do we need them in a tokenized future? Well, I think CSDs will become custodians. Um, and um, from, for at least if they want to continue uh, safekeeping assets. Um, but they might uh, have a, a also a role around the governance of the blockchain where those assets are issued. Uh, I think it's important, uh, especially for securities token, that uh, um, the, the blockchain where those assets are issued is controlled and managed in the sense of who has access to it, who can do what, uh, sort of roles and, and, and responsibilities, I would say, of the actors on that platform. And that's a role that I, I, I believe CSDs could take because they have the experience uh, in the centralized markets. So uh, most likely that's a role that they will take in the future. Uh, beyond that, I don't see much safekeeping role uh, anymore, uh, as I think, in my view, the asset should be as close as possible from the investors uh, when, when you are in the decentralized way either directly with the investor or with a third-party custodian, as, as you rightly uh, pointed out. Mm -hmm. But they will provide digital wallet services, in your view? I think they should, yeah. There is no reason why. Maybe for the retail market, for example, uh, in a specific market, in a specific domestic uh, environment, whereby um, uh, in order to, to enable... Uh, anybody in a country to, to potentially uh, own uh, those type of assets, they could play a, a nice a domestic uh, infrastructure role for, for retail customers in that domestic market. Mm -hmm. And permissioned, an permissioned networks, as you mentioned, they, they could have a role governing those, deciding who can join and punishing those who break the rules and, uh, and so on. But there's a lot of talk now about how in the future, the worlds of permissioned and non-permissioned are going to to converge somehow simply because the, the permission networks will want more and more nodes to make their networks and get more network effects. And the, uh, the non-permission ones will want to be regulated. So actually the future probably doesn't look like one divided, you know, binary, in a binary fashion between permissioned and, and non-permissioned. And you think CSDs can, can find things to do in, in, a, in a converged future, if you like, or are they very dependent on, on networks being permissioned? Well, I, I do not see securities, uh, well, for example, if you look at uh, those issuers or those securities token issuers who are working on open network, on, on, on open blockchain, public blockchains, you still have a component of, um, of, of permissioning of who owns, who is able to play a role of custodian, who is able to play a role of, uh, uh, of, of, of investors, actually. And they do that differently than in a permission environment. Uh, they do that through a whitelisting of address, for example, or by only those addresses are allowed to hold those assets. And that whitelisting cannot happen if you don't do KYC. So there's always a way uh, of, of uh, on public and, um, and private blockchains or on permission and, and less permission blockchain to, there's still always a role of allowing people to play a role or, 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 or not. So I think that role could still be handled by, by CSDs. Now, does it make sense to be at domestic level? Probably not. It's more regional, if not global level, that these things will happen uh, in the long, long, long term, um, assuming that uh, uh, regulations and, and uh, uh, somewhat aligns a, a little bit around uh, security token in the future. Now, you mentioned KYC, AML, CFT, sanction screening as a role CSDs could, could fulfill. Do you think that they should 
be thinking about developing digital identity services as well? That would be a good uh, idea indeed. That's, that remains a challenge uh, across the world. Um, there are many initiatives trying to, to, to crack that nut, but um, it, it's, it's not happening because it's too commercial in terms of initiatives. And I think, well, CSEs are commercial companies most of the time, they, but, but they, they kind of have a, uh, a domestic national interest role as well uh, to play. And uh, for domestic markets, uh, they, they could be a, a good player to, to look at that uh, issue indeed. Mm-hmm. And hopefully align their approach uh, in, in, uh, by discussing them at industry group like Exda or Axda and, and all those those ones. Now, there is one reason that, that CSDs will survive, which is in the European Union under the under the CSDR. CSDR you have to appoint a, a CSD, and, and the the uh, security token networks being set up here are, are finding that they have to do that. Um, would you expect that requirement to be lifted eventually? Well, it ha- it's going to have to. I mean, the CSDR w- was created for a good reason, a good historical reason. Now, I guess. If you're evolving into a space where uh, it's no longer centralized, it's decentralized, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense anymore to have that requirement. Now, how quickly would it go? Would it be uh, alongside the adoption of Mika or in Europe, for example, that they will realize that, yeah, CSD uh, doesn't ma- really make sense? Uh, I don't know how quickly it will go, but it has to evolve. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. But in the in the UK, we the government has said they're not going to to... Uh, impose the settlement discipline regime of, of CSDR, for example, so kind of the UK is outside it. Is this an opportunity for for the United Kingdom to sidestep this CSDR requirement? Why not? Yes. I mean, uh, if, if they effectively are less stringent of, on the need for CSD uh, than the, the rest of Europe is, uh, it's, it's, it, it fits better the bill for decentralized uh, finance and, 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 and securities token that's, than, than the opposite, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned that um, one role CSDs could play was facilitating interoperability uh, between token networks and, and between networks and traditional markets, mm-hmm. uh, which brings us to the subject of, of standards. Now, you, you spent 18 years at SWIFT. You were latterly head of standards for the organization in, in Singapore. You're still convener and Singapore rep of ISO, the International Organization for Standardization. So you're very well placed to tell us how you think standards will, will fit into the, um, into the token Economy. I know there's an ISO working group working on a digital token identifier. I know that the BIS in the UK is doing some work as well. Tell us um, how you see, whether you think old-fashioned style, whether old-fashioned is the right word here, whether classical standards have a role to play in security token markets. Do they or do they not? Sorry, there was an interruption. So uh, can you repeat the question? My question was, um, the uh, is there a role for... Uh, um, classical uh, standards, ISO standards of the type which which backed SWIFT um, mm-hmm. messages in the security token markets. Okay. Uh, I think there is a, definitely a role for data standards like uh, like ISIN, for example, or digital token identifiers. So that, that the need to uh, identify objects in a unique way uh, is, is critical as well in the crypto space and the securities token space. That's, that's a given with the extra uh, complexity that it needs to be at blockchain level. And that's why the DTI was developed. Um, one ISIN could have 
10 different DTIs because the instrument has been issued on 10 different blockchains, uh, for example. And it's important to know which one it, it is on. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what the, the data layer. On a, on a data model point of view, which is the ISO 2022, for example, um, uh, having a common understanding of terms, a uh, common understanding of data being exchanged on a distributed ledger technology or on a messaging point of view or in an API uh, is still very important. Uh, I, don't not, I do not see a lot of tractions, unfortunately, in the crypto space to look at those type of standards. FIX has a little bit, uh, there is a, a bit of interest in the FIX space, uh, which is more honestly for communication between the trade, the trading, well, the exchange and their users. Uh, not too much to standardize what is being done on, on the blockchain itself. Um, but yeah, I, I think those standards will be important, but they need to adapt to the new uh, environment uh, and they need to uh, go beyond, um, for example, uh, standardization of data concepts. They need to also go uh, into uh, standardization on how smart contracts are being defined, for example. And there you have a company called Digital Assets, you probably know, uh, who has done a great work by developing DAML, the Digital Asset Modeling Language. Um, uh, I mean, these standards uh, hopefully um, uh, can become ISO standards in the future. Uh, and, and instead of trying to fit an existing standard into uh, an ecosystem that doesn't will not work for it, for it. And can or does DAML draw upon the business definitions, for example, in ISO 2082? They do, uh, and they actually did uh, specifically in the context of ASX. So that was a requirement of the Australian Securities Exchange that uh, DAML plus ISO 2022 be implemented to enable uh, as much uh, interoperability as possible with the old world, but also with the future new world of securities, uh, or digital securities. Um, is it systematic? Uh, I don't know. Um, whether they've also taken that approach in Hong Kong Exchange or other projects that they've uh, they've had, I guess the best would be to uh, have an interview with uh, Yuval <laughs> in the next edition uh, mm -hmm. to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you mentioned DTIs, by which I assume you mean digital token identifiers. Yes. Um, there's this ISO working group working on that. It's ISO two four one six five. Correct. Um, and then you've got the BSI in the UK working on, on a cross-chain standard. Um, we've seen the publication of the FIN P2P protocol. I don't know whether you've, you've followed that, which ostensibly allows investors to execute trades on one blockchain and settle and custody them on another. In other words, it's, it's, it's crossing the, the barrier which lies between the different substrates of, of blockchain. Um, so there is, there is work going on. Um, a, how helpful do you think that work is? And B, what are the gaps that still need to be plugged? You mentioned smart contracts. Are there others? Uh, I think it's going the right direction. Um, the, the challenge will be that there are different methods looked at to, uh, inter to enable interoperability, like uh, uh, the wrapping of tokens uh, from one blockchain into another blockchain. So, if, for example, you have um, um, a Bitcoin on this blo Bitcoin blockchain, and then you can have wrapped ERC20 tokens that represent that Bitcoin uh, in, once it's, it cross over to the Ethereum blockchain. And there are other ways of doing, uh, other technological uh, ways of doing it. Um, if you have multiple ways of doing interoperability, you create interoperability problems between the various interoperability solutions as well. So, so it's a kind of a, a, 
we, we have to be careful about not having a, uh, a, a negative cycle of issue solutions trying to solve the same problem becoming a problem. Um, the best uh, analogy would be uh, everybody loves standards, uh, right? But there are the fixed standards, the FPML standards, the ISO standards, they sometimes overlapping. That's not good. So um, I'm not sure what industry group or uh, organizations should take a, a role in ensuring that they these things converge before they become a problem. Uh, but uh, that would be the gap uh, I identify in that space. Okay. But just to cut to the chase here before we leave this subject, is it possible that tokenized markets can get away with not using uh, the messaging standards that we've got used to in the in the traditional securities markets? Are there technical fixes or workarounds, protocols which enable the industry to avoid that, or is it does actually is it actually going to need to agree on standards across different facets of the token world? Uh, I'm not sure I understood the question. Um, I'm wondering, I'll restate it because it, it, it's, it's the, to me, it's the nub of the issue. Whether, you know, in the traditional securities markets, we have um, swift messages, fixed messages, FPML, which are structured ways of, of exchanging information. Do we need those type of standards in tokenized markets or not? Uh, we do for... Uh standardizing the way uh, contracts are representing, the way instruments are represented, the way uh, smart contracts as well are designed. So that's, uh, for example, one of the objective of the BIS initiative is to ensure that there is a consistent representation of, of securities token and their attributes beyond the business attributes uh, for to ease uh, the implementation. Um, but you still need to be able to communicate with your custodian. As, as an asset manager or as a customer. So there uh, you will still be communicating with your customer uh, custodians with either messaging or something else. Uh, so the trend in our space at least is to use APIs to do that. And there, there is a real issue because uh, every custodian has their set of APIs, non-standardized. So I do see a role of ISO 22 or FIX or whatever protocol within that space to ensure that the Customer to custodian uh, communication is standardized if used by through APIs is custom is, is standardized to uh, ensure you don't have to implement five sets of APIs because you're using five custodians. That's an area your, your friends at Swift are, are getting involved with trying to standardize uh, APIs to ISO 20022. Um, now, um, moving on from, from standards uh, and um, even from, from technology. Uh, one of the obstacles to the growth of these markets is, of course, the, um, the current state of securities laws and regulations. Um, we do see jurisdictions um, passing token-friendly laws, notably Liechtenstein, Switzerland, um, Monaco, Hong Kong, and others, um, and the UK and, and, and France even. But um, that gives investors some degree of certainty. But how far do you think we have to go before law and regulation cease to be obstacles to institutional money investing in security tokens? Because they need to know that what they're doing is compliant and that they have certainty of ownership and that the regulation is, is settled. How far away are we from that? Uh, I wouldn't, I, I think we're not that far. Um, another approach has been like the Singapore approach, which is saying, well, security token is a security. So it's just a different way of representing it technically and to transport to transport it and store it. So 
uh, the, the existing capital market service uh, license applies, the, as the, the existing Securities and Future Act applies, no change. Uh, you, just, uh, you, you just make sure that it's done in compliance with that on a different technology. So as long as you have that clarity, I think there is no obstacle for investors or, and, or issuers to, to, to choose that technology. It becomes a problem when uh, there is no clarity. And I think uh, either because of a lack of a new regulation or because the regulator has not been has, has not stated that the existing regulation applies. So um, when you look around the world, uh, I think the, the one that is lagging behind is is actually the Securities Commission in the US who seems to be have you know souffle uh, le froid et le chaud as we say in French, which is uh, being. Uh, uh, wanting to be uh, proactive and at the same time being negatively proactive sometimes uh, around those type of instruments. So uh, until the US, which is the, one, the biggest financial market in the world, has uh, clarified everything around uh, those type of assets, uh, I think the rest of the world will, will, will still will, will suffer from that as well. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a, um, uh, talking of regulation, a division between blockchain true believers who, you know, reaching back to the origins of the cryptocurrency revolution, uh, it was set up to avoid being regulated and to get rid of central banks and all the institutions which have grown up over the centuries to govern financial markets. And then you've got this class of blockchain pragmatists. We touched on it a bit earlier on when we were talking about how these worlds are, are converging and some of the pragmatists would actually like to be regulated, like to be supervised, because they think it'll help their, their business grow. Where do you sit on that spectrum? Do you, are you, you know, drawn to the true believers or are you a pragmatist in terms of helping security token markets really grow and take off? Uh, I'm, a pro- uh, I'm, I'm a pragmatic for sure, uh, because I don't believe that governments, uh, lawmakers and regulators will, will leave value storage and value exchange unregulated because that's, uh, that, that's, that's what crypto is all about. That's what security token is all about is, uh, is, enabling the exchange and the storage of value. And as soon as you do that, um, as soon as it involves money, uh, you know, in other words, uh, regulators get involved. So it's unrealistic in my view to believe that there would be a system that would not be regulated at all. Um, now the level of regulation is, is the challenge, is, is the, the issue here. It's not, uh, I, I do think that there is an, uh, a problem when uh, regulators uh, regulate too much too quickly. Um, so there is a need for some patience in regulation in the sense of let, let them try. It's an innovation. It's a new way of doing things and see where it goes. Yes, there will be victims on the way for sure, but not to a point that it's unsustainable. And then regulate when I understand how to regulate it and regulate at the right level of regulation. For example, the AML-CFT uh, challenge that's uh, supposedly Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies pause is, is, is really not a challenge. I mean, AML CFT is a solved problem in the crypto space by the simple fact that you can trace all transactions from the, uh, the, from the very beginning up to now. You can go up, uh, you can go back to, uh, to two hubs, three hubs, four hubs to investigate transactions. That's something that does not exist in the fiat currency world. And when you look at the numbers uh, of, of, of cryptocurrency being used as a, a way of money laundering, it's, it's so small compared to US dollar or other fiat currency or even 
going through traditional banks, that it does not deserve the, the highly risk uh, status that we have uh, in, in the financial industry nowadays for money laundering. So, so that's, that's, that's my, my point is uh, regulation is important, but the right level of regulation and not regulate, not try to, f- to fit a, a, an old regulation into an existing, uh, a new concept that is fundamentally, fundamentally different uh, than the traditional finance. Mm-hmm. Now, one area where the, the true believers, the true blockchain believers are still in charge is, of course, is DeFi, you know, where the counterparties uh, are anonymous and there are extraordinary experiments going on. How much work do you think that the traditional industry, by which I mean the custodians and CSDs, uh, as well as people like yourselves, are making to try and understand what's going on in the DeFi market? Are there, are there useful things happening there from which we could learn? Uh, yes. Um, to me, DeFi is still in experimentation phase. Uh, they, it does not yet deserves to be looked at on a regulatory point of view, for example, because it's still very experimental, though it's growing very quickly. So I will understand why uh, uh, lawmakers and regulators are a bit, uh, might, might be a bit uh, scared about it. Um, but what is important is try to understand what exactly it try, it's, it's trying to accomplish and see where the risks are, if there are any risks. Uh, and I think the major risk is around code and, 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 and how syst- on term, in terms of technology it works. That's where the, the, the risks are in my view at this stage. And, and based on that, come up with uh, a way to regulate that um, is progressive. So a step-by-step approach. And to, to enable, not to, to kill the, 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 the baby in the egg, I think it deserves to, to grow because it's interesting as a concept. Uh, and, and, and they ultimately will be a role for banks as well and for existing, uh, into, they will find themselves a role, <laughs> I'm sure, in, those, in these ecosystems at one point as well. Mm-hmm. And what do you think it's trying to accomplish? I think it uh, tries to uh, reduce the number of intermediaries between the lenders and borrowers, for example, uh, and therefore uh, limiting the, 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 the fee capturing in the middle by intermediaries. That's really what, what and also en- enables more liberty in terms of, um, of access to, to financing or access to liquidity for those who needs uh, that uh, at, at, at one point. Uh, of course, for most of the retail players in that space, it's, it's trying to get to earn a yield in in a world where banks don't pay yields anymore, uh, pay interest anymore, so it's kind of financial inclusions in a way for some for some of those users who can um, pledge ten dollars or hundred dollars and get a, a return on that. It's also a way to earn more money for those who are more savvy in terms of finance and banking, and cannot earn those um, returns anymore in the traditional way. Uh, but beyond those financial benefits, I think there are interesting um, conceptual benefits that should be looked at for microfinance, for example, projects uh, and, and for uh, financial inclusion in, in, in particular, mm-hmm. where banks could have a role and governments could have a role. Yeah. Interesting, you mentioned code as a vulnerability and the, the, the Cypher Trace report said that actually bad actors are moving away from cryptocurrency now towards DeFi precisely because they think they can exploit uh, weaknesses in, in, in smart contracts. Yep. Um, which makes me ask, do you think that a, um, this is a penultimate question really, do you think a security token infrastructure can be made secure by design from the outset? 
has the code been tested enough now? I think so. Um, and there are ways of building smart contracts in a way that, that you can predict all behaviors of that smart contract by, um, uh, by not only technical testing, but also business or, or, or functional testing. Um, and I don't want to uh, make advertisement for Daniel again, but uh, Daniel has apparently that functionality where you can really test all functional uh, um, processes that could be derived from that smart contract and make sure that there's not one that is hidden that you haven't seen. Um, so yes, I think it's mature enough um, to, to the, the industry is mature enough, the technology is mature enough, the understanding of smart contract is now mature enough to build robust ecosystems uh, that can be trusted by everybody. Do you ever worry that this um, world of blockchain is just proliferating too rapidly? Because you're seeing these rising gas fees, this reflecting a kind of lack of capacity to process transactions. So people are saying, well, that's very expensive. I think I'll build my own. Um, do you worry that we're in a, um, a negative uh, sort of arms race here in which the, the blockchain industry is uh, fragmenting at precisely the point where it should actually be looking to consolidate? through things like standards? Uh, it's, a, it's a very good question and a complicated one to answer. I think um, it's, we all know that we will never have only one blockchain that will capture all. Uh, it, it will be a, a network of blockchains that will need to be interoperable uh, through, um, through sometimes other blockchains or through other technical solutions. Um, do we have too many of them? Probably. Is that a problem? Not really at this stage because um, we will end up having maybe 10 or 12 uh, in, in 10 years that are uh, dominant um, and the other ones will just disappear by lack of usage. So I'm not too worried. It's a bit like, it's a bit like the, the beginning of internet where you have all those different um, uh, providers uh, which end up at the end having uh, the big five uh, or the four whatever uh, companies that we know about. Mm -hmm. Is that a good thing? I don't know, by the way, that it, there's so few of them now. One final question for you, Alex. The, the traditional securities industry, it has a lot of advantages. It has an installed client base. It has real revenues. It has real profits. It has thousands of people working for it. Um, yet it doesn't seem to be responding very aggressively or adapting very fast to what's happening in, in cryptocurrencies and, and security tokens. Do you think that cautious approach is sensible as a strategy on their part? I think it's time for them really to wake up uh, if they want to, uh, to play a role um, on the long run. I do see crypto native players who are becoming gigantic in the sense of uh, having grown a business that is now sometimes valued higher than banks. <laughs> um, I, I, I was joking about uh, us on-chain custodian buying uh, State Street maybe in the future. I'm, it might not happen with on-chain custodian, but I think it might happen in the future with a Coinbase, for example, uh, or and um, who, uh, who will want to go into the traditional equity and fixed income custody and why not uh, buying a, a a, a top five uh, custodian in the future because they have the, the liquidity to do so. A, a, a bit like ICE uh, buying the uh, New York Stock Exchange at one point, if I remember properly in, in the past, it was unexpected when ICE came uh, along and, and it happened. So I think if banks wants to be relevant in the future and custodian banks in particular, 
uh, it's it's really time to move now. Consolidation is not a one-way street. That is a very interesting and and uh, what's the word? Um, seminal thought to to end on. So. Alex Ketch, thank you very much. It's been a really fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for, for having me again. I loved it as well.